Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 84. Nearly three years ago to the day, Jamie Madigan came on this program and told us all about the psychology of games. That's his website and his podcast, psychologyofgames.com. And he's a psychologist who writes about video games, tabletop games, mobile games, role-playing games, every kind of game you can imagine. He writes about them from the perspective of a psychologist. So he explains why they were designed the way they were designed, why we behave the way we behave when we're playing them or when we're interacting with other people playing them, but also what about human psychology itself can be explained by certain elements of how we interact in the gaming world. And I just find it endlessly fascinating to see what sort of insights he can derive from things that I never really had considered whenever I'm uh, messing around on a game. So there's been a lot of interest in Jamie's expertise lately because of Pokemon Go and its insane popularity. But I wanted him to come on the show because guess what he did since the last time he was here? He wrote a book. It is called Getting Gamers. I have a copy right here. It's actually a nice big book. And I'm flipping to the table of contents to tell you that it has four sections. Those who play, that's about people who play games, about us. Those who make, game designers. Those who sell, the people who try to get us to play games and keep us playing them. And then finally, the games themselves, a little bit about the design of games and how they work. Things like cheating. Why do people cheat and how does it spread? Why do people become very toxic when they talk to each other online and in games? And why are we so devoted to grinding away, sometimes at the expense of our own sanity, just to get virtual rewards? We're going to talk about all of that stuff with Jamie Madigan, proprietor of psychologyofgames.com and the podcast and the author of Getting Gamers, right after this commercial break. If you need to make a website, you need to make a website with Squarespace. This episode is sponsored by Squarespace, and whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, that's all included with your Squarespace website. Create that website using simple, intuitive processes, tools that are so easy to use, it's just a click of a mouse, and Squarespace makes adding a domain to your site simple. And here's the thing, if you sign up for a year, you receive a custom domain for free for a year. If you want to sell something online, they have seamless commerce tools. And from nationally recognized brands to your favorite local shops, Squarespace is trusted by hundreds of thousands of savvy shop owners around the world. And they include all the tools that you need to track inventory and process orders and send custom emails all in one intuitive interface. Squarespace commerce allows you to understand every aspect of your business. Squarespace offers 24-7 customer support, so if you have any problems with any of these things, someone will be there to help you figure it out. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code 
so smart to get 10% off of your first purchase. Squarespace. Set your website apart. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McGraney. Our guest is Jamie Madigan, the psychologist who wrote the book, Getting Gamers. And this is just sort of the raw interview with me and Jamie talking about his book and games in general. Uh, first of all, it's kind of amazing right now. I mean, uh, last time we talked, games were everywhere, but games are everywhere now. Like, uh, I get on an airplane, everybody's playing a game. Uh, Assassin's Creed is about to be a movie. Um the, World of Warcraft just was a movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, uh, I mean, they still don't make good video game movies because that's never, I mean, Assassin's Creed may work out to be okay, but um, they really are everywhere again. And um, it's even like uh, my wife's grandmother is like, you know, playing games other than <laughs> virtual slot machines. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, I was interested in how your book kind of starts out talking about toxic behavior, because I think, uh, in all of our virtual worlds, not just, uh, video games, but also in, uh, social media and anywhere people are hanging out where they're not actually, uh, physically sharing space, um, toxic behavior seems to bubble up pretty easily. And I was fascinated to learn that, um, Jeffrey Lynn and the player behavior team, at least, first of all, that there was a, there was such a thing, uh, right. and that they had, um, sort of taken uh they were like we can do something about this in a game called league of legends and um i was wondering if you could talk for a second about what they what they did when what they learned and what we could learn from it yeah i thought that the story of the the player behavior team at riot games was a, a good one to lead off with and jeff lynn had earlier this year left uh riot and league of legends kind of go off and do some other stuff but he's left behind a bunch of people that are continuing to do the same work. But I think that the approach that they took was was really interested, interesting because of its sophistication and the willingness to sort of apply some science and some scientific method to studying the problem. And one of the insights that I think they had is that, it, look, it's not just anonymity that causes problems. You know, a lot of people will just say like, well, if we just make everybody use their real names or if we, you know, can somehow identify these people, then they'll clean up their act. And I, I don't think that's generally true. I mean, you look at Facebook where people use their real names and that's there. People still <laughs> misbehave on there. And yeah. I, I think it has more to do with what psychologists call a state of de-individuation uh -huh. uh, of which anonymity can be, you know, a precursor or a cause it can help create that state. But essentially de-individuation is where you feel that you are not, an individual as much as you are like a member of a crowd, a faceless member of a crowd. And you sort of get, um, you know, whenever you have a situation that makes you uh, not visible to other people, like your true identity, not visible to other people, there's sort of the anonymity piece where like you can't see me and the consequences of my behaviors are not going to be tied to my identity. But also whenever you get in situations where you sort of lose track of yourself and even to the point where, you know, you're wearing a mask or uh, you can't directly observe your own behaviors, you know, so they've done studies where just like putting mirrors in rooms will make people feel less de-individuated because they'll see themselves or when they uh, put people in costumes and have them wear like uh, 
Ku Klux Klan robes or nurses' uniforms, that that can affect their their behavior in different ways. So and there's the famous think, experiment with the kids in the um in the candy. Yeah, the Diener study uh, back in I don't know it was like the 1970s, but that was sort of one of the the hallmark studies of it, where they had the kids uh, go up uh, on Halloween night. So the kids were out trick or treating, and they set up uh, a bunch of different houses in the Seattle area with uh, like the entryway or the porchway with like bowls of candy, you know, like fun size Snickers. And they, you know, would greet the kids when they came up and they said, okay, like I'm going to go do something in the other room, but help yourself to the candy, but only take one, one per person, one per child. And then they would like go behind this like fake wall and like look through a peephole and spy on the children, which is probably not a study <laughs> that you could get away with today. You know, <laughs> internal review boards probably wouldn't allow that sort of stuff or it would be bad optics regardless. <laughs> um, but they would watch the kids and see what they did. And for some of the children, like they had robbed them of their identity. So these kids were like in costume for Halloween. So for like half the kids, they would say like, oh, what's your name? Where do you live? You know, oh, you're so-and-so's kid you know, that sort of stuff. So they would make them feel less anonymous. And for other kids, they didn't ask that at all. And they found out that when kids were uh, left anonymous, they like took more candy. They stole more candy. Instead of taking one, they would take a fistful. Uh, but, and so for some other kids, they would say, uh, they would assign like a scapegoat for the group. So kids would come up in groups and they would say, okay, little Johnny there in the cowboy costume, uh, if any additional candy is missing when I come back, I'm going to hold you personally responsible. And what they found out was that like groups of children, when they had a scapegoat, like they would steal more candy. <laughs> and like the double whammy was when the kids were left anonymous. So they didn't ask them their names or where they lived or any of that stuff. And they had a, gr they were in a group where they could sort of blame beha bad behavior on others. Like 85% of the kids in that situation stole additional uh, candy. Uh -huh. So again, it's kind of going back to this idea of there is the feeling that your identity is part of a group. You're not an individual and, uh, that can lead to behave different types of behavior. But the interesting thing is that it's not necessarily bad behavior. You know, uh -huh. or like our, our default setting when we're de-individualized is not like venom spewing. Yeah jerk face which is how it was has been presented a lot of times even mm -hmm. in even in the literature but of course also in pop pop science that that this is a bad thing we turn into you know um we're gonna we turn into angry mobs or whatever yeah and so there's there's like a different a few different models or a few different takes on de-individuation but i think the one that's most relevant to video games um you know says that when you are in a state of de-individuation when you feel like you're part of a crowd and the uh, consequences of your behavior are not necessarily linked to your identity, that instead of necessarily acting poorly, what you do is you look to the social environment for cues to how you should behave. So you're more susceptible to cues as to how you behave. So if you see other people uh, stealing or doing something bad or trash talking or, or being a lousy person, then you're more likely to think like, okay, well, that's acceptable in this situation or that's uh, what's expected of me in this situation. But also if you see people cooperating and helping and being nice to each other, the same thing happens. You see that behavior and say, oh, well, that's the sort of uh, behavior that is expected of me right now. So, and so, there's, so in their game, they were um, people were being generally horrible people as they often are on, on the inter online in, in, yep. in, in, in games, in competitive games especially. 
Um, so what, um, what happened? I mean, what, what, what did they do? What did they do to try to reduce this and give people better cues? You mentioned left for dead actually. And I thought about that because I, I have, I, I remember playing that game and, and I was a very, I was like, I will be the best, whatever role they gave me in that game every <laughs> single time. Um, I'm interested. So, what are some things that video game designers have done to try to uh, harness the the, the, up, the upside of the individuation? So, specifically, the folks in League of Legends, they the first thing they did was like just mute players. You know, <laughs> so when they they misbehave, they would either mute them entirely so they couldn't chat, they couldn't text chat or voice chat or do anything, and then they did some fancier stuff where they said, "Okay, you have like." a budget of five voice chats that you can use. So, so make them count and be careful and don't waste them on being toxic. And that sort of reduced the amount of toxicity. They saw, you know, re- reductions in that. But I think for philosophical reasons, they really didn't like the idea of muting players. Like this is a team game. You're supposed to be able to, you know, talk to each other and, and communicate. Uh, so they tried some other things like they would uh, try priming you know, mm-hmm. which is where you present an idea and it gets in, on the top of people's minds and it's more easy to recall, more likely to influence behavior. So they would just display like simple messages on um, the screen while the game was loading and say like, you know, people tend to play worse after they've been yelled at or, or word, something along those lines or uh, competitive player or cooperative players who work as a team win more often, mm-hmm. you know, those types of things. And they again, they saw like a small bump. And these were relatively small bumps, but when you're talking about a game with tens of millions or more like players, small bumps are are very big. They're very yeah. important. And wasn't one of those messages? Uh, didn't it also backfire on them? Yeah. What was the one? It was something um, like I took a Who note. Who do you it, think will be the most sports? Which <laughs> yeah, of your teammates will be the most sportsmanlike, yeah. or, or have the most sportsmanship? And uh, that actually re- resulted in like more reporting of toxic behavior. <laughs> and I think the idea there was something called the spotlight effect is just where you make you you call to mind or call to somebody's attention, like a certain kind of behavior, you know, you shine a spotlight on it and they're on the lookout for that behavior. Right. So it may not be that the, the matches were any more toxic, but people were looking for toxic behavior to try to answer this question yeah. that had been put on their mind. And they also found you um, something to do with friends. Like you, you, if you could at least get two people who knew each other to play the game, even with a group of strangers, that had some effect, right? Yeah. So the idea was that friends, uh, people who are on their friends list and group up together and go looking for a match, are going to be more likely to treat each other well. You know, your mm-hmm. friends. You don't generally cuss out your friends, or if you do, you do it in a way where it's clear that like you're just joshing around and, yeah. and have fun, and you don't mean it. So they started looking at like, okay, this is a five person team. Um, do we reduce toxic behavior if we have two friends and three strangers, three friends and two strangers? And they found out that like sort of the optimal mix was three friends, I think, uh, grouped up with uh, two strangers to fill out a team of five because the friends would sort of set the tone. Again, remember when you're you know, in a state of deindividuation, you look to the other people in your group or in your environment for cues on how to behave. And if these three friends are sort of behaving themselves and being friendly and, and cheering each other on, then the two strangers that were paired up with them start to pick up on that. Yeah. You know what, what something, I feel like there's a lesson in that, in that chapter really made me think this, like, um, they, you know, this was a social environment, a virtual environment that where people acted socially. And when they took their hand off the till, when they took their hand off of the the you know the steering wheel for this thing, when they just left it to itself, 
bad things happened. And then when mm -hmm. they actually put some effort, some thought into how do we create this environment, they were able to, because you wrote in the book that Lynn said, uh, players are inherently good uh, and yeah. bad context creates bad behaviors. And, um, you know, I, I try to think that when I'm looking at uh, uh, YouTube comments or, or, or Twitter stream, especially after the conventions and stuff. And I think these people are probably good people and they're, they're put into a social environment right now with no, no guidance. There's no cues. There's nothing. And there's probably a way to handle this other than just straight up going ban, 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 ban down the line. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I'm not sure that there's no guidance or no cues because often the guidance and cues are provided by, you know, the people at the top, you know, the politicians or the marketers who are saying like, this is, you know, I'm right, they are wrong. This is, it's okay to hate this other person. And, mm. and this isn't about like which choice you should make. It's about which person you should hate more uh, and <laughs> that type of thing. So Again, people really pick up quickly on those sort of social cues and to the extent that they that the situation is ambiguous or uncertain or like their opinions are ambiguous or or uh, ambivalent, then they start to look more and more to the environment, maybe even unconsciously to decide like well what is included in the acceptable in the range of acceptable behaviors here. And, that is and they pick up at them. That's that is so, and this is like one of the biggest lessons. Even if you don't, <clears throat> just one of the biggest lessons you can ever learn from psychology at all. For me, uh, as especially if you come from a culture that's very individualistic, like American cultures, um, is how much environment matters in behavior. Mm -hmm. And we have a strong intuition in an individualistic society that that people are that their personalities, their character determines what they do and say and how they act and how they behave, not the situation they find themselves within. And that the situation doesn't have any, as much, hardly any power compared to who they are. And, not uh, true, though. And that's yeah. just not it at all, right? I mean, that's, uh, um, this, this is showing up in games as much as it is social environments. And what you said really makes me think that because, uh, or, or reminds me of that because, when you when you don't know what to do, you you look to the environment. And the environment, uh, you know, is a social environment. Oftentimes, um, yeah. And competitive games kind of have the deck stacked against them in a lot of ways because you know the environment that you're playing the game in is a competition, right? So mm -hmm. already you've got concepts and ideas about like beating other people and proving your proving your dominance and proving that you're better and winning. And in a lot of the games, you know, like first-person shooters, they're very militaristic and there's sort of a violence undertone or, or at least like, you know, I'm going to defeat the other team. <laughs> so sort of off the, off the bat, that, those cues are already there. Mm -hmm. And it's an uphill battle a lot of times to provide cues to like say, okay, no, yes, this is a competition, but primarily it's about cooperation within your own team mm -hmm. and, and being nice to each other and, and being, having sportsmanship. Um, yeah, so it can be I, tough. I remember Journey being a really magical experience in that um, the only way to win the game is to cooperate with a stranger, and um, yeah. you aren't given any instructions in, as to how to do that or that you should do that. It just sort of you start you start it starts to reveal itself to you as you play. I remember when I played it, I thought I was playing with a really smart AI at first, <laughs> and then I because I had read nothing about it, and then I uh, I had the most like. Uh, I, I remember my chest just filling up with this new emotion of, wow, that was something 
and they really play it up later on when you have to really, really, really almost sacrifice yourself for the stranger to get to the end of the game. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it was it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, wow, the context of this situation is making me do something that I wouldn't have done normally in a video game. Yeah, um, Journey was a really interesting case because the mechanics of the game would actually not allow you to hurt or hinder another player. Like the only thing you could kind of do is either be ineffectual or help them out. Um, so you couldn't really troll the other players or, or, or get in their way. Uh, so, and, and you couldn't communicate directly with them. The only thing you could do is like press in the right stick and chirp, make this little chirping sound. So, <laughs> so you couldn't say like, man, you really suck or, <laughs> you know, you can't, I can't believe you haven't beaten this level yet. Yeah. You know, another thing that I was reminded of is Gears of War 3. I remember it's still my favorite uh, uh, competitive uh, uh, shooter is um, I remember that they had, and you mentioned this in the book, they had some preset things that your character would say if you did certain things. So if you had the uh, the uh, uh, reticle on an enemy and you clicked the stick, they had a, like a 20 different lines that your character would say, mm. like there's an enemy or look over there to the left, to the right. They would look at the, the AI would determine where, what you were looking at and then communicate it to the rest of the group through their headphones or through the speakers. Uh, so you wouldn't have to actually say it. And it, I, I remember that there, there were several situations that would do that. And I remember when I was playing that, I was like, wow, we're all working as a team right now because they took out some of the weirdness between telling people, <laughs> you know, and they, some of the effort was take out, taken out of it. It was really neat. And I still like that. Any game that lets you mark the enemy without having to actually say anything uh, mm-hmm. by just doing a little click really, really, for me, encu- encourages more um, teamwork. Um, I think there are lessons there for other domains outside of games. Yeah, there's another game called Overwatch uh, that I've been playing a lot of that does some similar types of things where a lot of the communication is just automated. You know, like if your team needs to get on a capture point, then, you know, one of the characters will say like, ah, they're taking over the point. Go, go take it back. Or I need healing or those types of things. And it does have voice chat and text chat as well, but it does, I think, go a long way towards like automating those cues for proper behavior. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsor. It's been said that we should surround ourselves with people who are smarter than us, benefit from their knowledge, keep ourselves challenged. And that is why I love having unlimited access to the Great Courses Plus. And I keep encouraging you to sign up to this because... The Great Courses Plus is a cool new thing. Even if you've you've heard of The Great Courses before, this is different. This is unlimited access to award-winning professors and experts about whatever interests you. They have so much to go through. We were looking through all the stuff just the other night, and we both, my wife and I, Amanda, we picked about 20 different things each that we had never seen before. They have engaging, demanding video lectures in thousands of different topics, and they're easy to fit into your schedule. You can watch anytime at home, the gym, break at work, and you can start and resume from any of your devices. I just watched their course, Games People Play, Game Theory in Life, Business, and Beyond. What is Game Theory? It's the scientific study of interactive, rational decision-making. So what is that? Well, it's just sort of the central part of agriculture, politics, computer science, biology, and economics, and all sorts of other things that involve asymmetric information exchange. Now, this whole lecture series is 24 lectures. 
And my favorite one is probably 13. Whom can you trust? Signaling and screening. It's all about how people try to convey information, elicit it or guard it from other people or other animals. He uses examples from mythology and movies and card games and the animal kingdom to illustrate what it's like to live in an asymmetric information exchange society. It's great stuff. I want you to sign up so you can start streaming courses like this one yourself. And right now, as one of my listeners, you will immediately get a free month of unlimited access to all of the great Courses Plus lectures when you sign up. Start your free month today, month, free month, by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And now we pick up where we left off with our interview with Jamie Madigan. One of the best things that I ever learned was to stop thinking that the guy that cut me off in traffic is an asshole. Uh, and that, <laughs> well, he and, might be, but you no, he, know. No, yeah, that, yeah, it's not, uh, <laughs> but, it's, but that, and just, just knowing that you're somebody's asshole at some point and, uh, and that, uh, Put that on and, all my time. <laughs> and that you, uh, you always have an excuse. Absolutely. And it's a reasonable one. And, um, that really altered my, the way I thought about everything after I, after I finally let that sink in that I'm somebody's asshole. Um, <laughs> Overwatch is a good, is a good thing to talk about actually, because they said, um, if you cheat once you're out for life. And, yeah. um, and when I read about that, I clicked on whatever article I was reading had a link to a place where you could go buy cheats and hacks. And so I wanted to see like, what is that community like? And I went there and there's all these people complaining about they couldn't cheat on this game anymore. And I just, I wanted to ask you, cause you talk about this in the book. I mean, like, why would you go somewhere and spend money on a hack for a game that basically to me would suck all the fun out of playing the game? I mean, why would you, it's, why would you cheat at a competitive game? Because you're not competing anymore once you do that. What, what's, what's going on there? I, I'm not sure I got a real satisfying answer for you on that one. I think sometimes people do it as a technical challenge. Um, you know, where they'll find ways to exploit the game and uh, write code that allows them to do things they're not supposed to do. Um, it's just sort of like, well, can I do this? Or I've already wrung all the fun out of this game that I think I'm going to get. So here's like an additional way I can sort of mm. like challenge myself outside of the rule set that I'm supposed to be playing by. Um, but as far as like, that doesn't really explain the people who go to a website, uh, punch in a PayPal account and buy you know, a subscription, a month-long subscription to cheats for, a, you know, a competitive shooter game like that. And, you know, I think those people are probably just trying to find, like, another way to get uh, interest out of the game. They may be trying to find another way to unlock content so that they can, you know, get all the different, like, cosmetic items more quickly uh, to get at the games. But one of the things that I wrote about in the book, though, is, like, regardless of the reason why some people are cheating like cheating in in games and in other areas of life is contagious hmm. so you know there one guy in the book i talk about did a study of uh, steam users and st like steam is a platform for downloading and playing computer games 
And it has like all these community tools like friends lists that, so that, you know, if, if you and I, if I have you on my friends list, I can invite you to go play a game and so forth. And they looked at people who had been banned from Steam for, for cheating, for running like cheating programs that they detected and, and banned that person. And then sort of did like a network analysis of, you know, who are these people's friends and are their friends tend to be cheaters and, and how many like degrees of separation, you know, do there tend to be between cheaters and non? And they found that like, yeah, once like somebody was banned for cheating or like before they were banned that you, they were more likely to have cheaters on their friends list and people who didn't cheat were very unlikely to have people on their friends list. And uh, there's just some sort of interesting research there. And there were like other studies that would, um, you know, where they would bring subjects into a, a room and they would say, okay, we want you to solve like these math problems and we're going to pay you uh, X dollars for every correct one that you solve. And there would be like not difficult tasks, but time-consuming ones. Mm -hmm. And they would then rig the system so that there was like a confederate in the room who after like 15 seconds was just like done and would get up and then go turn in uh, his or her sheets to get their, their like $10 or $15 or whatever it was. And in some of the conditions, they made it possible for them to cheat by like the proctor wouldn't look at their paper. They'd just be like, they would literally say like, oh, just go feed it into that shredder, into that document shredder. So you could very easily see how you could cheat just by claiming that you had solved, you know, so many problems. And they found that in <laughs> case in cases where they had the person like cheat or uh, gave people, well, they found that in cases where they gave people the opportunity to cheat and easily get away with it, that yeah, cheating went up. So because they knew, like on average, like people, a group of people should be able to solve ten of these problems. And when they gave people the opportunity to cheat, they found that like on average, like oh, they finished eight on average. So no other explanation except that they cheated. And they found that when somebody flagrantly cheated and advertised it to the group by, you know, claiming to have finished all the problems after a few seconds, that, like, cheating skyrocketed, that everybody else started to cheat. So I think that, you know, in video games, when you see other people engage in that sort of behavior, it's more likely that you're going to seek it out or engage in it if it's an opportunity uh, whether it's downloading cheats or using some exploit in the game. Yeah. So it's in the best interest to get rid of it as fast as possible, to put those fires out, I, I would assume. Yeah, because it ruins the fun for for other players. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you're on a server full of people cheating at the game, you can't engage the way you want and you can't have a good time. So you'll quit and move on to something else. I love you know, cheating is like the kudzu of gaming. Like after if after a game has been out long enough, it'll just be if you know, especially if the developers have sort of walked away from it. It just uh, you know it starts to creep over. I know my dad, who's uh, almost seventy years old, he still plays lots of PC first person shooters, and if he goes and plays one of his old favorites, it's just. It's just a, it's just, it's like the all drugs Olympics, you know, it's, the, uh, it's just a, it's just a, who's got the best hacks, uh, and, uh, he still plays it. So it's, it's fascinating to watch that creep in on old stuff. Um, I want to ask about two other things where we go, uh, fanboys and grinding. Um, and, and, you know, fanboys is near and dear to my heart. The, how I got started talk, uh, as a science writer was by trying to explain, why people do this. It was one of the, my biggest, biggest questions. So I was excited to see that you, you, you dug deep into it in the book. Um, surely you've met people who are super into Apple and they hate everything, uh, Android or the other way around, or in, if you're in the South Ford versus Chevy, if you are, um, 
uh, you know, if you are noticing anything to do with politics, you've noticed fanboyism. And, um, but more, one of the weirder aspects of it is whenever people are just really into a product. And I, if you enjoy games, console games, this is something that you've had, you've experienced, which is people who think, and this, this was a more of a problem maybe a few years back than it is this generation, but it sure is still there. The idea that if I buy an Xbox, then I now must become a, a soldier in the Xbox army and must, uh, <laughs> and, or if I am a, if I buy a PlayStation, that means that everything that Xbox makes and does and is, is garbage to me for all time. Um, it makes no logical sense on the surface because it's just a thing you bought. It's just a box with some, 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 uh, some circuits in it that plays a game. A lot of times it plays the exact same game that you can play on the right. other one. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's very perplexing, but psychology does have something to say about this. And, um, and I am, uh, I just want to hear from your perspective, from what you've learned. Why do people do this? So one of my favorite, uh, illustrations of this, I actually just heard a, a few days ago where somebody was talking about the, the U S presidential election season coming on us. And, they mentioned this New Yorker cartoon where there were like two dogs sitting in a bar having a drink and the dogs were wearing like very nice pinstripe suits, you know, looked very successful. And one of them was saying to the other, you know, it's not enough that dogs succeed, but cats must also fail, <laughs> which you know, I think kind of encapsulates the whole the whole concept pretty well. And you're right. I think that the root of a lot of this is the fact that we put so much of our identity into the products that we buy and the, in the book, the, the experiment, the classic experiment, psychology experiment that I lead into the topic with is um, one where they went to like a horse racing track. <laughs> and they, uh, these two researchers went to a horse racing track and they would go up to the people who were placing like their $2 bets on a race. And like half the people, they approached them um, after the person had actually gone up to the window and placed their bet. And they said, like, how confident are you that your horse is going to win the race, the horse that you just bet on. And then the other half of the people, they caught them like right before they made it to the window uh, and before they had put their money down on the horse. So really literally just a couple of minutes uh, difference between those two groups of people and the fact that like one had committed money to the, to the bet and the other was just intending to commit money to the bet. Like they mm -hmm. probably had their horse picked out. And they found that like <laughs> on, a, on a seven point scale that, the people after they had actually put the money down, their uh, confidence in the horse winning the race had went from like a three to a five, you know, like not, not a huge difference, but, but measurable and, and pretty significant. Um, so the only difference between those two people is whether or not they'd invested money. And once they invested money, they, they didn't want to feel like they had wasted that money. So uh -huh. they're again, like the consistency between our state, our behaviors and our, uh, internal sort of beliefs, you know, we want to have consistency between those two things. And one way to do that is that the easier way to do that is to change, you know, our beliefs or at least our reported beliefs uh -huh. in line to match our behavior. Cause it's hard to, to go back in time and change our behavior. <laughs> right. So, uh, the people who had made the bets were reported being more confident and, and feeling better about the odds of, of their choice. And you see that in products like you know, last uh, console generation when the Xbox One and the PlayStation 4 were coming out relatively close in, in time, a lot of people had to choose one. Like, you couldn't afford to drop $500 twice, you know, on, on, a, on a system like this. Most people couldn't. So they had to either go Team Xbox or, or Team PlayStation. 
And when you spend that much money, you know, four to five hundred dollars plus 60 bucks for a game, maybe another $60 for another controller, maybe sign up for like their, their, uh, you know, subscription service for another $60 for the year. You're talking a lot of money and you don't want to have to deal with any of the cognitive dissonance that might come from having made a bad choice. And so people will actually shape their beliefs to be more in line with their, with their, uh, behaviors. And then because we're very tribal creatures, you know, we, want to know like we can't both be right you know like (laughs) the other guys can't be right who bought Mm -hmm. a playstation if i bought an xbox like that that just doesn't reason so they have to be wrong and we have to start um, paying more attention to reasons that sort of confirm that belief because it makes us feel better about ourselves yeah it's this is this is some of the weirdest things that people these are some of the weirdest aspects of our psychology and i I know some of this comes from being tribal and that there's a whole good there's there there are this is all adaptive i get it you know Mm -hmm. that on one hand it's you know it's good that you support the decisions you make and you don't stop and him and haw for an hour every i mean you have to choose and move on and that's um because most of the time that's the situation that we've probably been in um but it is odd because you, you talk about the, the, the Pepsi study, and this is one of my favorite studies in all of psychology where they go, aha, it's not Pepsi, it's Coke. <laughs> and then like they have an MRI. If you could just explain, like they, they have an MRI. They're, they're looking at their, the person's – basically they're looking at the person's brain activity and then they say one thing to one group and one thing well, – to just if you could go through it, it's great. Yeah, if I remember that correctly, they, they had people come in and take like the classic Pepsi challenge or – Maybe it was the Coke challenge. I forget. But the idea would be that they would say, like, do you prefer Pepsi or do you prefer Coke? And the person would say, I'm a Coke or I'm a Pepsi drinker. And they would have them uh, take samples of soda uh, or pop, I guess, depending on where in the country you're listening to this. Drink. But (laughs) drink, soft drink. (laughs) Uh, They would have them take samples of of the drink and, and then they, I think they had them hooked up to like an MRI where they would monitor like the activity in their brain around like pleasure and, and decision making and so forth. And they would say, okay, here's a cup of like Pepsi and they would drink it. And if like the Pepsi drinkers, like their brain activity would be pretty much what you would expect. Like this is what we, you know, saw, observe them, how we observe them behaving when they drink their favorite soda. Uh, but then they said, aha, it was actually you know, Coke in that unlabeled cup. And, you know, and it was sort of a switcheroo type place. Then the interesting thing about the study was that, like, people were actually, like, their perceptions of the taste of the soda was actually changing depending uh, on what they believed it was. This like, is, that was more important than what their taste buds were telling them was what their brain was telling them yeah. they should they should experience. This is, ins- you know, I, I spoke to a psychologist uh, maybe a couple of years back where they talked about um, you could tell someone how much um, how many calories were in a drink and it would alter how much ghrelin their body produced. Right. They would feel physiologically more or less satiated by the drink, by what they believed the drink contained. Now, what drives me, what, what blows my mind about this is like you don't really know what a calorie is. You don't actually have any kind of connection to the molecular, you know, truth of ghrelin or even that ghrelin exists, <laughs> but there's a, I that was like a Dragon Ball Z character. Or <laughs> there's an associative, 
you know, chain that goes all the way down to our phys- basic physiology from something like that. And, and, and the idea that I could, that a word could actually change whether or not I enjoy the, the, not that I believe I enjoy it, but that I I'm having a different physiological experience than before I had that, you know, association appear in my, in my mind is it's out of this world. I can't, I can't, it's, I don't, I don't want to believe that's possible. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, and it's sort of the same basis for the placebo effect in a medical context as well, right? Like that you believe that the brand name pain relievers work more effectively, yeah. even though it, it could just be the same thing as the off, as the the store brand. Yeah, th- there's even placebo sleep. I mean, they can tell you can trick people into thinking they got more sleep than they did, and <laughs> they'll perform better on tests. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I listened uh, to that episode of your podcast. That was a good one. <laughs> That's insane to me. Um, okay, so. Um, yeah, so it makes sense. There's tribalism. There's choice supportive uh, uh, bias in here. There's the avoiding, you're avoiding cognitive dissonance. And, you know, you write, I love the sentence you have in your book, which is it's like there's a mismatch between behavior and belief. That means you got to either change your belief or your behavior. So, you, you know, you can't go back in time. You might be able to change your future behavior, but right there in the mm-hmm. moment, you're going to probably change your belief. Um, and all that stacks and stacks and stacks, especially especially if you've got a product that, the marketing of the product is all about when you buy this product, you're saying something about yourself, mm-hmm. uh, which is really what an Apple product does most of the time. It says, you know, you're saying you're the kind of person that would buy this. And now you have to, uh, now you're throwing in consistency bias. And I mean, there's a million things that are coming into play now where you're, um, they all, they all force multiply each other. Yeah. And, uh, and you become a fanboy who says Xbox is garbage. And, uh, I don't care what, I don't care what Sony's other practices are. PlayStation gets my bunny every time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, okay, last last question, and, and uh, you know, um, I was never a big Pokemon person. Uh, I missed out on that. My generation just after Pokemon, but I know what it is. Same. How could how could you not know what it what it is? And I, um, everything from Pokemon to Chin Pokemon to. Um, um, Every iteration of it and then every permutation, I understand, and I have plenty of relatives who are into it. But I had some friends over uh, a couple weeks back, the day that Pokemon Go came out, and um, they were like, why don't we download it? They were in town for a weekend. Why don't we download it, go catch Pokemon, it'd be fun. And so we did, and we did, and we did have a lot of fun. And, <laughs> um, and, uh, and um, so yesterday in, my, in the town that I live, um, they had a the zoo here had a big Pokemon festival. So they just put out a bazillion lures and awesome. And so we, we, we went over there and I had very casually, I barely play the game at all. I just don't have time right now, but I, I, I went over to the Pokemon thing for the, to see the spectacle of it. And there were more people there than I've ever seen at this zoo. I mean, ever, ever in the history of ever, 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 there were hundreds of people. Maybe and there were, there were parking lots to other places that were filling up. There were people, it was just, it was, it felt like that episode. I know I'm not the per- first person to say this, but it felt very much like the next generation episode. Uh, <laughs> it was a bunch of people. With, it was the like, game. Oh yeah. yeah, the game, <laughs> that terrible episode. <laughs> <laughs> and a bunch of people walking around. Uh, my, my favorite part was there, they have a little train for kids that uh, goes round and round the zoo. And it was just, full of full on adults uh with their phones out just going oh i've got to i've got to hatch this egg about doo, 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 just going around it. that's hilarious that's and brilliant <laughs> yeah it was very it's brilliant uh and um 
It's absolutely a phenomenon. If you if you haven't seen this, I urge people listening to the show to go to YouTube and watch people uh, in Central Park playing the game because it looks like uh, like the it looks like the the Walking Dead. It's just throngs of of uh, <laughs> herds of people will just come over a hill and descend on a virtual item. I've and never there's seen a, there's like a very particular way that people hold their phones when they're playing this game. It's like they're not reading something on it. They're not taking a picture. They're holding it at a very unique angle. Right. So you can always tell. Yeah. So, um, you know, why is Pokemon Go popular? There's a million reasons for that. But uh, and we don't have to go through all of it. But what I one thing in particular, I think that this may introduce to people who may who this may be a new thing for people that they may not have had in their lives. And I know this was true for my for my wife, even though even though my wife and I have play games like you know, the Witcher and, and, um, and, uh, Final Fantasy and Fallout and stuff like that. So we're, she's familiar with grinding, of course, but there's a, there's a certain kind of grinding in a game like Pokemon where there's, there's, there's a very pure kind of grinding, like, you know, like hatching an egg or something is just, just walk a long time and Mm -hmm. then it hatches or go walk around this area for a while and maybe something good will pop up. And, um, if you get enough of this garbage, um, enough of these trash Pokemon, you can render them into candy and then get a better one. So there's a, there's some pure grounding in there. And I'm, um, I was wondering just if you could sort of help people understand how is it that we so quickly, I mean, it take, it took almost nothing for me to go, well, I got I've got to do this now. This has to be, yeah. this must be completed. I must, I must get this thing. I remember when I hatched my first egg in that, uh, app, I was like, I, it felt wonderful. <laughs> so it gives it a little fanfare and it pops up right, on the screen. Right, it's real right. nice. So uh, why in the world would that be pleasurable to me? Like it doesn't, it seems like it's outside the realm of anything that I experience out here in, you know, it's not like eating French fries. So what, what's going on there? You know, I think we're just, as, as people, we like to achieve goals. You know, we get a little shot of pleasure from, uh, actually finishing something that we feel like that we've undertaken. And Pokemon, like most other, uh, Pokemon Go, like most other games, is very clever about how it feeds, like drip feeds you information about your progress towards an objection, whether it's like hatching mm-hmm. an egg or having enough candies to evolve, you know, one of your Pokemon or level it up or uh, being able to challenge a gym. It's, it's really smart uh, about how it communicates that information and it's smart in that like it gets you started towards uh, uh, progress towards completing those goals sort of automatically you know like during the tutorial of the game you you catch a pokemon and then you have the option to like level it up and then you sort of automatically get an egg uh, mm-hmm. i th- i think if you don't start out with one you're probably going to get one the first poke stop that you go to and uh, it, it you know it it gets you started down the road to fulfilling those goals and then you know we just we like to see the numbers go up and (laughs) and and it's it's sort of something that's hardwired into us where we feel that like okay this is something that i have control over and this is something that i know that if i do x that it's going to lead to y Mm -hmm. and we we like having that sense of control and a lot of times in our lives you know if we're in, in school or at work we don't have the sense of control over our lives that even a simple app like Pokemon Go gives us. Mm. So, you know, we can get that that psychological need fulfilled. We can get that psychological scratch, uh, itch scratched mm-hmm. by engaging in, in video games in general, which is one of the, the things that I think they're great for. Uh, and these, particularly these kinds of apps that 
give us that sense of uh, control, even if, like, if you step back and think about it, like, well, this is pointless. Like, you know, <laughs> wh- why do I want to evolve my my little pigeon thing? <laughs> um, you mentioned in the book, um, we've talked in the last podcast about the Zignaric effect, or Zignaric, um, it's a weird word. Um, yeah. And... Uh, Zignaric, I think, Zignaric, yeah. okay. I'll never be able to, to pronounce that word. The... Um, <laughs> And you talk a little bit about the competence autonomy relatedness thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is also something that's provided by all this. But uh, if you would, before we go, I, I would like to, um, considering what we're talking about Pokemon, like the power of grinding, uh, what is Grindstar? Because <laughs> I had never heard of that and I was totally like, Bleh. Yeah, that was like a little indie game that was made by this guy during uh, what's called a game jam, which are these events where game developers and amateur game developers will go and they'll be like, okay, we've got. 48 hours to make a game and they'll, they'll just create something really simple. And a lot of times the jams will have themes and the theme of this particular one that spawned this game Grindstar was basically make a game about something that you hate about video games. And so this person chose grinding, which is doing the same thing over and over and over and over again in order to make incremental progress towards, towards some pointless goal and uh, so in Grindstar, you like you would have like literally like your little knight, your little character, and there would be a monster on the right side of the screen, and then like a little sign that said like grind or click, and you would just click on the sign, and you, little numbers would go up. You like your strength meter would go up, and eventually it would be high enough to defeat the monster on the right. You'd do that. You'd go on to the next screen, which would have a monster on the right and a little sign in the middle that said grind. And you click the grind, and you the numbers go up more. There was no point to doing it. Like no point to playing the game. Like it, it never ended. There was never anything more challenging to do than than click a, a button. And the guy had developed this game as sort of a tongue-in-cheek commentary on grinding in video games. Yeah. And I, I thought I made a great illustration of the concept and the fact that once he put it out there on the internet to be downloaded, he actually found that some people like just enjoyed doing the mindless grinding. Like some people were hitting like level 100 or more that he never thought anybody would ever get to. That's, that's interesting because I, you know, I had to quit Destiny because it, 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 got, the, it got its hooks in me. And um, I'm not a fan of mindless grinding. And um, <laughs> Destiny had some particularly, I felt, uh, I didn't feel, I felt like they were exploiting my psychology instead of making me, ha- letting me have fun. And that was, I could be wrong about that. That's just my opinion of the game. Um, and I remember, but I remember having so many things working their way toward completion and, um, and being really having a lot of fun. And then I, I, what I thought was fun. And then when I got the stuff, I, when it was done, I remember feeling like the very opposite of that. It was like the day after, um, <laughs> the day after a, a rave, <laughs> like, 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 like <laughs> I was like, I, I, it was, it was odd. Um, one of the worst feelings I've ever had playing a video game was actually reaching my goals in Destiny. Um, and it made me think long and hard about whether I wanted to keep playing, and then I stopped. And I haven't played since. And I have friends who are still playing. And um, Yeah, it's, it's, that, it's, it's that point where you realize that, like, oh, they're just making the numbers go up. Like, there's, there's <laughs> nothing inherently interesting about what I'm doing uh, to make the numbers go up. But uh, they expect that if they make the numbers go up, I'll keep playing. And I'm sure if someone is a, is on the Destiny development team listening to this, they're gonna they're like, we have to figure out how to get rid of that bad feeling he had, whenever yeah. he got his rewards. Yeah, so, I, mean, I, I had the same experience with Destiny. I played it like for 
40, 50 hours before I got burned out in, in a similar way to you, or it's just like, ah, I'm just repeating and they've just sort of added like new meters for me to fill up. Um, but at the same time, like 40, 50 hours spent with a game, like I call that a success. Like sure. I got my yeah. money's worth out of it and the developer got my sale and got me to stick around yeah. to make the game enjoyable for other people. So, and, and I did enjoy. I'm not going to lie. The the raids that I did were very fun. When, you know, the, one of the best. It's really weird. Destiny gave me one of the best experiences I've had in games, and one of the worst. <laughs> one of the one of the best, absolutely ever, was the first time I I did the, the big raid, and it was a group of people, and we had to all coordinate and work together, and then we achieved the goal. And I was like, this was amazing. Like this this could only happen in a video game. And then, you know, there was also that horrible desert of the real whenever I, <laughs> whenever I finally got all my stuff upgraded and I looked around the room and said, I, I just realized that if, if, if someone had accidentally pressed a button over at Bungie and gave me all that stuff and like it just, it just happened to all pop in place and appear there, that I would have realized there was, this was not a fun experience for me, that I wasn't, I was just chasing some digital dragon. There was nothing happening that was enhancing my life. So, um, yeah, that's that's funny you mentioned that because I've heard of people who start playing like uh, mobile games supported by in-app purchases and microtransactions, and they might go and do something like pay a hundred dollars to buy all the purple diamonds and like buy all the items and unlock all the things in the game like immediately, and which they would have normally been able to do by grinding by just playing for a long time. But once they sort of buy their way through all that, they find that like, wow, this is not fun at all. Why am I playing this? <laughs> so, okay, so let's figure it out. Uh, if people have got to buy this book, uh, it's everything. If you like games and you like psychology, you this is the this is it. This is the one you've always wanted. And if you, I obviously, if you make games or if you make apps or if you work in any industry, I think that um, is interested in how do you create really good uh, user experiences or how do you improve your, um, your, the way that your, your audience interacts, the way your fans interact with your product or your brand, any of that kind of stuff. This book has all that kind of stuff in it. So how do they find it and how do they find you? So the book's Getting Gamers, The Psychology of Video Games and Their Impact on the People Who Play Them. You can search Google or Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you like to buy books online. Uh, there's ebook and print versions of it. Uh, and then you can also go to psychologyofgames.com. That's the, the main clearinghouse for all of my stuff. Uh, you can find information about the book there, and you can also find literally hundreds of articles that I've written about the psychology of video games. And uh, I also do a podcast of my own, which you can check out there as well. Yes. Go listen to this podcast. It's awesome. <laughs> um, thank you so much, man. It was great catching back up with you. and um... That's a lot of fun. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Sort of a Spartan, a little rough around the edges for several reasons, mainly because I am crunching, crunching, crunching on this new book about how people change their minds and how to change other people's minds and just how to talk to people in such a way that you can maybe, maybe persuade them to see things from your perspective. Head to patreon.com slash you are not so smart to support this program, to improve this program in the new year, starting in January. Lots of changes are coming thanks to your support. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. All the previous episodes, you can find them at youarenotsosmart.com. We are part of the Boing Boing family 
of podcasts. You can find more of those at boingboingpodcasts.com. On Twitter, we're at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McRaney. Find us on Facebook and uh, soon the founder of Reddit right here on this show. <laughs>